Welcome to Wayward Muse, the media company that invites you to travel through drinks. I'm Steven, your host. This show is made possible from our listeners. If you enjoy having insights into the industry from award-winning restaurateurs, consider donating at yourwaywardmuse.com, where you will find season one of our web series. As a thank you for listening, we are offering 10% off our entire store. Just use code Listen to Your Muse for discounts on our merch, inspired by the paper plane cocktail and the bar tools you need to succeed. This episode is brought to you by Salsa Matcha by Chef Rishi. Salsa Matcha is the nutty, do-anything sauce you didn't know you needed. It hails from the state of Veracruz in Mexico. It'll completely shake up your taste buds and your cooking. Brighten up your dishes with three different expressions of this must-have, flavorful product. Personally, I put it on everything. And I mean everything. Have it delivered anywhere in the U.S. Just go to yourwaywardmuse.com slash matcha by Rishi. I wanted to welcome Josh Harris to the podcast. You may have known him from his bar Trick Dog, the James Beard award-winning bar known for its menu design in San Francisco. Josh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Good to be with you. Josh, I wanted to understand what it might have been like for you and, and the people at Trick Dog while you were going through the pandemic in San Francisco. Can you walk us through your journey? Yeah, I'm sure that Trick Dog has had an experience very similar to bars all around the country. Of course, guidelines and regulations in each city and each state uh, make the chronology of these things a little bit different. But you know, in the middle of March, we figured we had to close our businesses and do it in a uh, fairly permanent uh, or long-term kind of way. Although most of us uh, on our team would have maybe thought it would have been a couple months, three months, we just all are gonna go stay in our houses and a few months later, we're gonna come and reopen the businesses and everybody's gonna go back to work and everything is gonna be the same. That's obviously not what happened, but at the beginning of all this, I think that that was what was on everybody's mind. We stayed closed uh, at Trick Dog for about six months and didn't do anything, uh, no to-go, uh, no store, no nothing like that until the middle of September when we reopened. To say the least has been uh, scary and sad, but also we are grateful that we haven't closed permanently. And in the case of Trick Dog, uh, you know, have, have come back with something that is uh, you know, getting us a little, little further down the road. Well, I'm glad to hear that you all have figured out a way to morph and change your business model to get through this pandemic. Did you think that the way that you set up your menu helped you to kind of be ready to shift and pivot? It's funny that you bring that up because while there is a very similar mindset that we were in when we were exploring Quick Dog, which is the concept that we opened in the Trick Dog space, there was a lot about flipping the menu at Trick Dog, quote unquote, that we wanted to distance ourselves from. It's funny that when we got to January of this year, I joked with Katie, who works with me, that 
we could have flipped this entire thing again, like it was a trick dog menu and opened an entirely different to go and delivery concept themed out and uh, kind of a caricature of itself. And it would have been the 2021 version of a trick dog menu flip. But uh, we were very used to doing a complete 180 and uh, switching things around. So there, of course, were some similarities with, with reopening that we benefited from having done it before. And how do you, just so people understand, Trick Dog is lauded for its menu development and, and the way that you changed menus around very often during the year, creating really fantastic designs. Could you possibly break one down for us and explain your process in creating new menus? Sure. So we do two menus a year. Well, <laughs> uh, I'm speaking in the present tense uh, because surely we will be speaking about it like this again, but prior to the pandemic and, and in the future, uh, we have a two menu a year schedule and those menus launch on January 8th and on July 7th. We felt in San Francisco that there were not four seasons, that there were really only two. And, uh, you know, at least from a flavor perspective here in San Francisco and a six month period of time for us, we felt like was uh, an amount of time that people could come and enjoy uh, a cocktail menu as like a body of work and a body of flavor where they could navigate their way through the menu, uh, start with the drinks they were comfortable with, work their way through to the drinks that they needed to explore for the first time, find ones that they loved find ones that they wanted to come back for, build a relationship with those drinks and so on. We didn't feel like that could happen in a three month period of time that that was too quick. So prior to Trick Dog opening in 2013, uh, one of the things that we knew we were doing was that we were gonna do uh, a menu every six months. We also knew that we weren't gonna do a menu on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper or any similar format of menu that typically was the way that that sort of information was presented. And the first menu that we landed on was a little bit of an aha moment where we had a number of like Ben Moore paint guides and Pantone paint guides lying around our, our build site at Trick Dog. That aha moment was that that would be a great way to present cocktail menu. And <laughs> definitely we weren't the first people that figured out that that would be a great way to present the menu because Kalu Kale had done it before, but we just didn't know that. Uh, we actually did it differently than they had done it, which I think is, is kind of cool to see how conceptually two people can be inspired by the same thing, but it uh, you know comes to life in different ways. But that first menu was in the form of a Pantone color guide. We felt like a lot of the names of paint colors that we were seeing made really great cocktail names. And that was one of the things that helped seal the form is that we started combing through all of the, the names of colors and just picking out names that we thought would make a great cocktail name with no other context other than that being a cool name. And once we had uh, that list, we started to, you know, sort of sort and organize and discard. And uh, concurrently, we were uh, creating the menu that was to become the first cocktail menu at trick dog, uh, you know, the, the, the recipe portion of it. And then we started matching those up. And so all of the names of the drinks on the first menu were actual paint color names. We weren't doing anything like matching the colors of the drinks to the, to the, to the paint colors or anything like that, but they were actual paint colors. And that menu was really well received. It was cool. Like it was a cool form. 
it functioned really well, which in, in, in talks that I do about our menus, I, I point a lot to the Pantone menu uh, and, and how it functions and uh, how it was a success in terms of uh, our model of service, which of course we didn't uh, premeditate. It was luck at the time, but we learned how great that menu was afterwards through the uh, challenges and failures of, of other menus that we had. But that menu sort of uh, kicked us down a road that we hadn't necessarily planned for. And six months later, we were like, oh man, what are we going to do now? And we did another menu. And then, you know, three years later, it was like, oh wow, we're doing one of these every six months. And, uh, you know, here we are, uh, eight years old. We've done a lot of menus. And, uh, you know, eventually over time, they became uh, pretty grand flips, changes of food, changes of, of some decor, changes of art, changes of small wares not becoming an entirely new business. That wasn't the thing, but really changing everything that we could in line with the theme of the menu. Uh, also building in pretty significant charitable components to our menus, which uh, you know fits into some of our, our philanthropic values uh, across our company. We were able to use the menus as a way to, to, to raise money for some of the things that we wanted to support and uh, sell the menus, connect with a lot of artists and, and, and so on. So it, it became a lot bigger and a lot cooler to us than we would have expected when we made that first Pantone menu, but it became the thing that really marked Trick Dog. Uh, it's sort of, you know, singular uh, greatest identity point, I think, is those menus. I mean, it's a lot of the first things that I read about were the menus, and I, I find a lot of great inspiration from going from a, uh, a color palette and using it as your first way of painting your restaurant and making a statement. That kind of gave me a bunch of ideas. And I think that's the, the mark of a truly great source of inspiration is it can carry on and inspire others. Where else do you draw your inspirations from when it comes to your menus, your restaurant and your company at large, Bon Vivants? I'd say it changes over time. I look back at the, the things that I thought were cool in 2013 and then the things that I thought were cool in 2015, 2018, 2021, and, and so on, they're all different from one another, particularly in the case of Trick Dog and the calendar of reinvention that we built into the way of doing things there. That gave us an opportunity to evolve with our evolving perspective of what was cool uh, or what we thought was cool very naturally. I think with respect to the company as a whole, it's harder. You know, you, you build an identity for something. And during the time of the pandemic, I've actually given a lot of thought to what it is that I think is cool and where I take my inspiration from uh, and how different that is from when the business was started. What things I would want to inflect on it now? How do I do that? What's the best way to do it? But probably no different than, than many others in that it's it's about the world around me and the things that I see, the things I'm inspired by, certainly by design, certainly by objects and by art. I have a, uh, a side hobby business of, of finding, sourcing, selling and collecting vintage items of all kind. And, and I'd say that that certainly is an inspiration to me, um, the study of those things and how I can employ them uh, into everything else that I'm doing, either, you know, the idea of them or them actually. Yeah, I found a your page that has a lot of those reused and antique style items, really fascinating to see kind of just your perspective because different things catch different people's eyes, right? And I think there was just one like closet 
cabinet that you found and you were just really interested in just how simple and basic and functional it was. And sometimes that's really all you need from an object. Totally. I really, I really like that you were drawn to that, that shelf. Cause I really like that shelf too. It was very simple. The brackets were like inlaid into it. The shelves could be configured in different heights. It was clean, it was old, strong. Form and function is really important. Uh, you know, obviously I'm not anywhere close to the first person to emphasize that relationship. Uh, but I am definitely a person that uh, will, will champion its importance. And that's uh, a relationship that needs to be the foundation at uh, a bar or a restaurant. Certainly it was the foundation of all of our menu creation, the thing that we were striving for. It has to look good, but it also has to work. And if it doesn't work, then it doesn't matter how it looks. But also looking good makes the fact that it works have that extra thing. Finding that relationship and the balance between those things is, is important. And, and with respect to the vintage items that I like, many of them are utilitarian. I mean, I, I, I like something that just sits on the shelf as much as the next guy, but when I find something that is like functional sculpture, to me, that is a, a very cool thing to have. And I think that was one of my first aha moments in the restaurant world is when you, because sometimes you kind of get carried away in the idea of like, oh, this is an art. This is, you know, I'm, I'm creating this thing. But then there's that aha moment eventually in your bartending career where you realize, oh, this is a craft. I have to make sure that this does its job. And first and foremost, it has to taste good and give the guest an experience before it does really anything else. Agreed. And I think that there's a lot of layers to that because, uh, you know, we could talk about just the drink itself and how it's constructed, what type of glass it goes in, uh, you know, what the garnish is like, or whether it gets a straw or, you know, those, those sorts of technical things. But also, what does the bar look like and how does it function? What does the restaurant look like and how does it function? How is it laid out? I mean, layout is a, is a huge component of of form and function together, design challenge of different restaurants. And so uh, there's really micro and then there's really macro uh, with respect to hospitality projects, bars, restaurants, and the things that they offer there. So for bar layout, just as a general question, did you say that you, that you would have any like cardinal rules for laying out a bar? They might've changed now because you know it's 2021 and we just went through one of the craziest pandemics in a century. But I would just be interested to know what your opinion is as to form and function of an actual space. Trick Dog is a very well laid out bar and it serves the room and the style of the style of, of how people interact with the space, the manner of it all really well. There was a little bit of luck in that. And we've designed uh, a couple other bars since then. One of them, Bon Voyage, is, is another place that I own. And uh, in, in some regards, the bar is very similar to the one at Trick Dog. But in other ways, there are some differences. And those differences turned out to be, uh, they made for really big challenges at that bar. And things that we thought would be uh, the right decisions uh, or were the right decisions for certain reasons, but without regard for uh, you know other parts that we should have considered. 
became challenging. Things about like the depth of the counter, um, distance between wells and uh, distance between the back bar and, and, and things like that. How that uh, connects the bar with the room, uh, what relationship the, the bartenders would have with the people on the other side of the bar and the people on the other side of the room and what that would do for the energy of the space. I don't have uh, the, the, the golden layout. Uh, but what I do know is that there are always things that you can't think of and no place is exactly the same. Even when you think it's exactly the same, it's not exactly the same. So, you know, there are of course things that are like standard. We raise the equipment up a little bit. We bring the counter closer. We, we try and do certain things that we feel like are better for the positioning of the bartender, better for uh, their posture, things of that nature to help their physical longevity and, and to be faster and more efficient. But beyond that, there are things that were seemingly innocuous decisions that, that turned out to have, uh, you know, big consequences, I guess, uh, that we hadn't considered in the case of Bangladesh. Such as? Specifically the depth of the countertop at Bon Voyage. There are some other things, but specifically that. And the space at Bon Voyage is pretty big, certainly big compared to Trick Dog big, you know, as far as San Francisco cocktail bar type sizes go. Mm -hmm. And it was important for us when we took over the space, when we bought the business from the, the previous owner, that we were like, how do we make this room feel more intimate so that the energy gets harnessed in, in a better way than what we felt like the layout was before. And so uh, one of the things that we did was we built the bar bigger uh, we pushed it out into the room a little bit. We made the countertop bigger, deeper, and it looked beautiful. And it also really like accomplished that uh, that thing that I described where you look at it and you're like, oh, this, this feels like it has taken up more space in a really positive way. And that it's going to push people to be in sort of like the right degree of, of intimacy and proximity with one another. And, uh, when it came time to serve guests night after night after night, and, you know, you, you look at the nuances of things. I realized that the bartenders and the customers had too much distance between one another. <laughs> maybe, mm -hmm. maybe now it's going to be uh, something that's all right, you know, uh, but it might be the new thing. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. But at the time it was something that, um, it was hard. I mean, like the, the physical part of just like, you know, getting the drink over to the person or, or pulling back that empty glass, but like more so there was a, an interpersonal connectivity that I felt like had a little bit of a barrier to it. This is like, we're talking subtleties here. I mean, these are the sorts of things that like maybe a, a guest doesn't realize or doesn't pinpoint, uh, uh, you know, but when you see these things night in and night out, and then particularly having the comparison of a place like Trick Dog, where, you know, really it just like so many things hit off of, off of luck uh, or just sort of like guessing the right choices and, and not knowing that they were great with respect to certain parts of it until you had contrast to something else. Trick Dog is a very intimate place, which also now in 2021 might be a really big challenge for us. In the case of Bon Voyage, that depth was really hard. And we're talking about like, you don't know that. You're like, oh, well, let's, let's add another 12 inches to the, to the bar top. You don't, you don't get a do-over on that. And you don't get to take it for a test drive. Uh, nor did we ever think that that would be a consequence of it. So, uh, you know, same equipment layout and things like that. 
if I had a do over there, uh, I probably would have done it a little bit different. Yeah. It's one of those things where you never know until you try it. I've worked at a couple of bars where luckily because of my height, it wasn't an issue, but I had some members on the staff who definitely struggled to hand off drinks. And it was just one of those things that the guest may never know, but the, the bartenders will of course certainly know. Mm-hmm. You had uh, spoken about trick dog and its intimacy. And I believe uh, I read it somewhere that you said, just because somebody says you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. I know that there have been some times where there's been chances to possibly open and let trick dog exist again, but you had said that maybe that wouldn't be the best thing because then trick dog wouldn't have that same feeling that we've been discussing. It's been a battle in my mind and continues to be one, particularly because of the, the roller coaster of regulations and guidelines that are happening for context at 115 today. The mayor of San Francisco, in response to alteration of state guidelines, announced that come Thursday, outdoor dining would again commence. Recently, and for several weeks now, San Francisco had, California had a ban on outdoor dining, which uh, is very strict compared to the rest of the country right now, but also there's been huge caseloads. But so he's constantly trying to take this information in and figure out the right thing to do. When we were contemplating what the best thing for a trick dog to do was, something that I kept on saying was just because the city says we can do it doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Just because we can build a parklet doesn't mean we should build a parklet. Just because we can do to-go cocktails a certain way doesn't mean that that's the right thing to do, and so on and so forth. And it really, in, in, in sort of making sure that that continued to echo in our conversations, it forced us to think about what the right thing for Trick Dog to do was from the point of view of health and safety and for the health of the business, and not to be reactionary because in there's a little bit of a sort of frenzy and excitement with what was happening with a lot of the changes around things. And so uh, there were policies that were uh, being put in place or relaxation of certain laws that many people in the bar and restaurant business around the country were like, these are great changes. These are great changes. These are changes that we shouldn't have had to have a pandemic in order to have put in place the sort of like reverse of puritanical ways of doing things that are holdovers from the prohibition. And so there was uh, a combination of, well, this is great. I can serve to-go drinks and we're bleeding money, paying rent, trying to figure out what to do. And uh, so let's just sell them. That wasn't always the best move for everyone. It's really been the great individualizer. Cocktail bars around the country, in my opinion, looked very similar and operated very similar. And policies that changed or got relaxed around the country were all very similar in, in, in a lot of uh, you know, sort of major cities and, and, and maybe even everywhere. But uh, to my earlier point, just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And what is great for Death & Co. might not be great for PDT, might not be great for Anvil, might be great for Trick Dog. And, uh, you know, but I, I firmly have believed throughout the pandemic that the policies that were put in place or relaxed were only uh, tools that bars and restaurants could use when making a plan to do the thing that's best for their business. Doing the policies wasn't just the best thing for the business, 
bars and restaurants needed to figure out the best thing for their business and then use those resources that were at their disposal to try and get there, which of course wasn't very much and still very challenging for people. But we really had to give a thought with Trick Dog to what the best thing is for us. We had the same resources available uh, as everybody else, but how everybody used them and what they decided to do with them was all very different. Which leads us very naturally into what you did decide to do, which was kind of take one part of the business that you had and amplify it and adjust it for the times that we were in, in Quick Dog. What was that transition like going from, you know, bustling cocktail bar to a food-driven delivery business for this new time? I was frustrated around the idea of doing Trick Dog, not as Trick Dog. And after eight years and really having a a firm identity that people really uh, understood the hallmarks of what Trick Dog was, that to do something that wasn't that was something that I couldn't get my head around. Um, I didn't want to. It was like every every way that I looked at it, it felt like a square peg in a round hole. There were certain businesses, for example, that I, I felt were more naturally able to adapt to the styles of service that were required or allowed based on pandemic guidelines. Things related to uh, the type of street that they were on, what their sidewalk setup was, were they on a corner, what their frontage was like, did they have outdoor space before, did people go there during the day, uh, what types of drinks did they have. I'm sure that you know you also have in your mind that there were certain places that you're like, oh, this is this is killer. Their whole setup is super cool, and uh, they have all these parts of their business or or surrounding physical layout that allowed for uh, what they did to, to work. And then there are others that just didn't lend themselves to that. You know, being in a sort of like small, cramped, uh, two-story industrial warehouse type space in the Mission District, like didn't easily translate to, uh, you know, like outdoor chill and spritz vibes. In the <laughs> yeah, I could see how that would be a challenge. Definitely a a different perspective trying to get from a a crammed space to try and morph into something. There are some places that totally just came out of nowhere and were like, oh, no, this is fine. Like I know somebody uh, down in the south side of Chicago. It's a little uh, beer bar called the Lulu. He knew a lot of carpenters and they literally just built out a ton of five by seven like huts and just (laughs) threw them up. And it's crazy that honestly really inspiring. I think how quickly the restaurant industry is all just actually, nope, we're just going to pivot this way. We're going to figure out this, this way. And it, it kind of speaks to me about the longevity that our industry has been able to continuously grow and achieve. And I feel like this is, it's going to be akin to prohibition when we look back on it and explain it to others but it'll just be one of those things where like yeah we had really shitty cocktails for a while because of prohibition or yeah we didn't have indoor dining so we uh built a bunch of different buildings or we shifted our food menu around but totally and and people are going to look back and say when did it happen that every space had a secondary structure in the parking spots in front of their businesses. When did that become <laughs> when did that become standard? It's like, well, in the great pandemic of 2020. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, like, everybody got a temporary parklet permit that never fucking went away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, every single year you're going to see tents just randomly appear because they already paid for them. Yeah. 
Yeah. But so um, in, in contemplation of all of that, I felt freed when I arrived at the idea, why contemplate something that does not lend itself to what we're being allowed to do? Why not design something specifically for the parameters that we're being allowed to do? You know, we were never a to-go and delivery business before. We didn't do it for food. We didn't do it for cocktails. Uh, why not create a business that is designed specifically with that intention? And once we started to go down that rabbit hole, uh, it, it became really exciting, frankly, to flex those creative parts that we don't often get to do. Certainly got to do around menus, but not necessarily around the, the entrepreneurial part of it. And there's been a lot about the arrival at the concept of Quick Dog and it's finessing it and, and bringing it to life that really is, is more than just serving during the pandemic, but is also uh, us taking this as an opportunity to explore a new business concept and its viability, incubate it as a brand, build an Instagram following, see if people want the food, figure out how to package it, what happens to our fries when they sit in a box? How do we make that better? How do we deliver a burger to you over a period of time that's good 40 minutes from now when all we thought about before was what happens when you put it on a plate and, and, and give it to you immediately? And so, uh, you know, in the long run, Quick Dog will not live forever at Trick Dog, but maybe when we come out of this, uh, Quick Dog will find a permanent home in a place where the economics of it makes sense for that type of business. Maybe we'll you know, get the opportunity to look at different places and airports or some, some new project where it makes sense for it to be a part of you know, an office building or you know, who knows, maybe we'll be in a giant's ballpark or you know, something cool like that. But, but I'll admit with Quick Dog that we have looked at square in the eye confidently because we believe that there is more of a benefit to us than just the revenue and that the opportunity for us to explore this business concept also has value and that now is the shits that uh, why not try something because what are our other opportunities to be able to try it you know you get a truck you find out you do a pop-up you know what opportunities do you get to do something like that and uh so that's been very cool, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if we could do it forever because eventually we'll have to make some, some real money. So I'm hoping that we can all get back to, uh, you know, hanging and drinking together. But I think it's really important to note that, again, back to what the city says you can do. The city saying that people can go back into bars and eat and drink the way that they used to will only be one part of this equation. The other part of it, and particularly in the case of Trick Dog, will be 80 people's willingness to pack into a bar that holds 50 people, laugh, tell stories, drink, bump into one another, and do that seven nights a week in order for that to work. And if that can't work because we all don't feel comfortable doing it, then you know we'll also have to contemplate doing something different at Trick Dog, which would not be Quick Dog and, and might not be Trick Dog either. It's going to be an interesting year for sure. Just from different timetables of vaccinations and then people's acceptance of social change once again. It's definitely something where we all don't have the answer to it. Well, I think we also touched on one other thing that I think is important. Looking ahead, there are some parameters that you have to meet, but do you foresee Trick Dog coming back maybe by the end of the year or what steps concretely are you looking for? The timing of your question is serendipitous and that this is a hot topic in my brain right now. 
with the next round of PPPs coming, my optimism that we're going to get one and that we're going to be able to use some of those funds in this case to help build a, you know, an outdoor service area, a parklet or, or, or whatever it is that we want to build out there. There is some contemplation in my mind about how TrickDog could evolve its service from what it was before mm. in order to still be cool to me, cool to you and to those people that used to love it and also people that haven't been there yet, but also safe actually and safe feeling. Are there things that we can do now that don't narrow our possibilities when we still don't know exactly how this is all going to shake out, but wanting to, to make decisions, right? And wanting to be prepared. That's on my brain a lot right now. I am excited for the time when Trick Dog, the place at 3010 20th Street in San Francisco, becomes a convivial drinking establishment again. Mm. But exactly the form that that takes, I'm not sure. I'm optimistic that it's going to happen in 2021 for the sake of uh, good outdoor vibes uh, in San Francisco. You know, we have, we have nice weather late in the year and, and all of that, but I'm not in a rush. I don't want to rush it. I don't want to be the first through the door. I want to do it right. I want to be safe. I don't want to set us up to, uh, you know, to do the things that are right for us when we know what those are. But, uh, I'm excited for when that comes and, and when Trick Dog becomes its next version of itself. I think that's a, a great perspective to have. There is a sense of frenzy that happens at a lot of restaurants when regulations are adjusted. So I hope that you're able to achieve something really spectacular if you decide to do outdoor dining. I know if I was in San Francisco, I, I would definitely want to pop a seat out in your uh, patio. I will say that my other bar, Bon Voyage, is on a street that you know has some challenges of like action and energy and cleanliness and cars. And just like, it's just like, it's like a major street in the mission. And that's part of what makes it cool. And also part of what makes it sad at times. And then each block is different, right? Like some blocks mm -hmm. are like really awesome. And some blocks just like, you know, are really dirty. And then some blocks are like where the wind just like blows all of the stuff and, and so on. And, uh, you know, we've done a lot of talking about trick dog, but, and it's easy even for me to get, stuck into that thinking about trick dog but bon voyage is a very different place in its life it was uh, about a year and a half old and there's still uh, a lot that needs to happen at bon voyage uh, in order to achieve financial success and security uh, it's been a great feat in some ways that that business has uh, weathered the storm this far we've had uh, a fortunate negotiation with our landlord that gave us some breathing room. We were able to arrive to some terms that worked for both of us in the interest of, of him continuing to have a tenant and a business that could survive there and us being able to, you know, sort of be able to be a business tomorrow uh, when, you know, when that works. But eventually uh, we're going to have to reopen this business that, uh, you know, really like wasn't, you know, nearly, as uh, solidified in its life and in its identity as Trip Dog was. And that is uh, exciting, but also scary in that if you really get down to the, the core of it, it's like if I got to reopen a bar that had been open for one and a half years and then take all of the things that I learned about it in the year and a half and then like act on those things when I reopened it, this would be a great opportunity to, to do that. Now, it's not as 
as, as it's easier said than done, of course, you know, certain things cost money, certain things are, you know, physical that you can't change and whatnot, but there, and of course, lots of things have to go through the filter of, of you know, post pandemic service and how any of those things will change. But uh, there is a great opportunity for us at Bon Voyage to reinvent certain components of that business. I have even contemplated uh, reinventing it entirely, even as far as uh, a new name, new style of service, new vibes and food and, and, and all of it. I'm not quite at the 23rd hour yet, but I know that we're getting closer to, to having to pick a direction with that as well. It's exciting to see that you still have all these different ruminations and ideas swirling around your head and uh, how to proceed. Uh, I, I've come away from this conversation inspired and thinking about different places where I draw my inspiration from. It's been fun talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Now, I do have one last question that I've asked most of my guests, and I think that it's timely. Uh, Based on everything that we've experienced through the past year, if you could pick a couple things uh, in regards to what you think should stay the same about the restaurant industry and what things that we have an opportunity to change, if you had a perfect world and control over them, what would would you change? I would lower the cost of alcohol. <laughs> I would pay everybody more that works for us. I would hope that people would all feel comfortable paying more for what they have at all of our establishments. Uh, I say those things, uh, you know, halfway joking, but uh, you know, also sort of serious. I think that there is a really big challenge that hospitality is facing. I've shared thoughts with this with, with a number of different restaurateurs over the, the time of the pandemic, but this is a very fragile industry. And its fragility uh, is, is financially based. And uh, there is a whole lot of operation financially that occurs for the slim statistically possibility of making a really small amount of money. There are a number of different levers that people talk about that could be pulled in order to change that. But we're really talking about like, global macro changes to the way that we do things. Uh, The amount of money that people are paid to work, uh, tip culture, all of the different, the fact that this is also different city by city and county by county all across the country, workforce, workplace, health, what people feel like they should pay to do certain things and what the challenges that then come along with as, as operators are um, in order to sort of, you know, meet people's expectations uh, so there's a lot of challenges there, and I'm, and I'm hoping that uh, when we come out of the other side of this, I know that it's not going to be a complete change, but I'm hoping that there is going to be some significant changes that enough bar and restaurant people around the country all get on board with to really sort of, uh, you know, help our guests get on the same page as us to uh, contribute to a more secure bar and restaurant landscape. It's like the same way that everybody got on board with teaching people that they could drink bitter things or that martinis were good or uh, that, you know, uh, just because it had sugar didn't mean that it was sweet, but that it was balanced. I think that we can have a global effort to also let people into our struggle in a way that doesn't alienate them and make the guests that come to the restaurants that keep them alive also a part of their continued success and prosperity.